I went to sleep as normal and I awakened up paralyzed on the 18th of July. And it's been a struggle to recover since then, as I'm sure you can imagine. I didn't know anything about stroke, that's the first thing to say. So I didn't know what had happened to me, but I knew that there was something badly wrong, obviously. I rolled off the bed, I had one working hand, it appeared, and I had a mobile phone. So I phoned first to my wife, which is, I suppose, an instinctive thing to do. And of course, I didn't make sense to her at all because I was just talking nonsense. I was garbled and confused. I then spent two weeks in hospital in Norway, getting excellent treatment. And after a considerable amount of toing and froing on the telephone, my son managed to arrange an ambulance flight back to Scotland through the insurance which I held as part of my business at that time. And I then spent three and a half, four months in hospital in Aberdeen. Patience. Because if you don't have patience, you're not going to get very far, I'm afraid. It is a slow process recovering from stroke, and it can be a very frustrating process for someone looking after someone who has had a stroke. So the advice would be to stick at it as hard as you can. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear, and this is Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. About one in four strokes are classed as cryptogenic, meaning the cause is unknown. There are a number of hidden causes that are difficult to detect, like irregular heartbeats, heart structure problems, hardening of the arteries, or blood clotting disorders such as thrombophilia. In this episode, you'll hear from Eric Sinclair from a boy in Aberdeenshire who suffered a stroke at the age of 55. Before my stroke, I was an education consultant. I worked for myself. I had been a head teacher, secondary head teacher. I ran training courses for head teachers and deputy head teachers across the country. And by the country, I mean Scotland and England, basically the whole of the UK. I was visiting my son, who was at that time a golf course manager in Oslo in Norway. I planned to visit him and thrash him on his own golf course. That was the idea. I arrived in Oslo on the 17th of July 2004. I went to sleep as normal and I wakened up paralysed on the 18th of July. And it's been a struggle to recover since then, as I'm sure you can imagine. I didn't know anything about stroke, that's the first thing to say. So I didn't know what had happened to me, but I knew that there was something badly wrong, obviously. I rolled off the bed, I had one working hand, it appeared, and I had a mobile phone. So I phoned first to my wife, which is, I suppose, an instinctive thing to do. And of course, I didn't make sense to her at all because I was just talking nonsense. I was garbled and confused. Um, I then phoned the emergency services in Norway. And of course, once you do that, you are in the system. So I then spent two weeks in hospital in Norway, getting excellent treatment. And after a considerable amount of toing and froing on the telephone, my son managed to arrange an ambulance flight back to Scotland through the insurance which I held as part of my business at that time. And I then spent three and a half, four months 
in hospital in Aberdeen, where I got very caring treatment, but I would not say it was the best quality treatment in terms of what was done professionally. Doctors discovered Eric had suffered from an ischemic stroke. My speech was affected to begin with, but that's improved significantly, as you can probably hear. I've still got left-sided weakness, and I still pay for physiotherapy every so often just to keep everything as loose as possible. I suppose I had four months of recovery in hospital, and then I had to get back into real life, as it were. And real life, of course, was a problem because I was self-employed. I had had no income during the time I was in hospital. So I had to try and get back to my business as soon as possible. It took a year. But eventually I managed to start going back and schools, doing training courses as I had done previously. But it took a long time, as you can imagine, to get back to that. The worst thing, of course, for stroke survivors is lots of bed rest. In many ways, you're better to get up and move about as much as you possibly can. I was given a certain amount of physiotherapy in hospital, and that was it, basically, two or three times a week. I spent an awful lot of time lying down or sitting, and that's not great. This was in a stroke unit in the hospital. I would say that in retrospect, looking back on it and knowing what I know now about stroke, I should have had far more physiotherapy in order to make the best recovery possible. At any rate, when I left hospital, I carried on paying for physiotherapy and I've been paying for physiotherapy ever since. I left hospital in a wheelchair. I now walk. I walk with my dog and I can walk in the woods with him and we're all very happy. I can't go great distances, but at least I'm able to walk. I don't require a wheelchair and I don't require a full-time carer or anything like that. So in some ways, as people keep telling me, I've been quite fortunate. Psychological and emotional therapy is, in my mind, just as important as the physical therapy that stroke survivors require. I actually felt so strongly about that that I wrote a book about it, which was published in 2011, 2012, around about then. And I donate all the proceeds from that to the Stroke Association. I've also become very involved with the work of the health service since then. I live in Aberdeenshire, so I got myself appointed to the board of NHS Grampian, which is our local health board, equivalent to a trust in England. It covers a huge area. And one of the reasons I got myself onto the board was because I was so disappointed with the treatment I'd had and I wanted to do even a little bit to try and improve things for others. After Eric's experiences, he wrote a book called Man, Dog, Stroke. I've always done a bit of writing and the book, it could be a very, very depressing book, obviously. So I had to kind of jolly it up. And one day I was sitting at my desk writing stuff about it looking at my dog, and I thought, I wonder what's going through his mind. So half the book is actually written by the dog, life viewed from his perspective, and the other half is my perspective, the experience of having had the stroke, 
and the repercussions and what I did afterwards and how I tried to get on the road to recovery. So it's a mix of the two. There's quite a bit of humour in there, although it could potentially be quite a depressing subject, obviously. It's sold quite well. It's raised almost £2,000 for the Stroke Association. A few years ago, I took part in an evening and there were four of us who described how we'd used writing to um, act as a therapy. And we were all coming from very different perspectives. Mine was from stroke, obviously, so I read some passages from the book and I explained how it had come to be written. So yes, it is a therapy, or at least it is for those of us that enjoy writing and enjoy reading. After four months in hospital, Eric was allowed to go home. I was not scared initially because you're ignorant in hospital in a sense. You think home will be the same as it was when you left. I hadn't actually been at home because I'd had the stroke overseas. I hadn't been at home for quite a long time. And I was allowed home two weekends before I actually left hospital for good as a kind of attempt to just see how things would be. I was given a weekend pass, if you like. And of course, the first thing that struck me when I got home was how much blooming furniture there is around the place, which has to be negotiated. If you're in a hospital, of course, everything's nice and clear and level. There are no rugs and there are no sort of chairs and tables and stuff that can be knocked over easily. So there's a physical sense in which it takes time to get used to being at home. And yes, there's an element of fear about it as well. However, it's not just a physical thing uh, or a fearful thing, it's an emotional thing as well because you can't help thinking back to the last time you were in the house and things were very different. Because our house was in the country, very rural location, we had a pretty large plot of ground, more than an acre of ground, which we used to grow a lot of fruit and veg. And I couldn't see any way that I'd ever be able to get back to that. Eric's focus from the very beginning of his recovery was getting back to work. I did think about it straight away, but I certainly wasn't able to do it straight away. So I thought about it, as as I said a moment ago, for for about a year before I actually got back to doing something. A, A certain amount of what I was doing in terms of training and support for colleagues was possible to do online from home or on the telephone. However, most of what I had to do, running courses and, and meeting people to face, face-to-face, had to be done in a building of some kind, either a local council office in a school or in some other venue with lots of people around. And that took a lot of getting used to once again. I can remember the first time I went back and ran a course, and I think there were about six or seven people on it. I was overwhelmed when they started asking questions because it was so difficult to process it all. And I think that's one of the sort of hidden effects of stroke, that you think things are okay, and then suddenly you realize that there are complications in in complex discussions that you haven't even tried to attempt for so long that it's very difficult to get back into it. I never really got back to doing it at the level I was doing it before. For example, I had a lot of clients down in the south of England. I just decided that I would restrict myself to Scotland. The travelling was just out of the question, it was too much. Apart from anything else, there's the physical exhaustion after stroke. 
uh, you know, apart from all the other problems, I decided to start small again and just build up. Eric's stroke caused a number of very serious physical disabilities, and he spent a considerable amount of time in hospital recovering. His progress since his stroke has been remarkable, and he now dedicates his time advocating for better stroke awareness and care. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Eric on some of the issues facing stroke survivors and aftercare services. Unfortunately, due to financial and resource constraints, often the decision to end rehabilitation for a stroke survivor is made on financial grounds rather than being driven by the needs of the patient. And the initiatives he's involved in to help other stroke survivors. I've also helped to start up and run an exercise class in the local community for people who've had a stroke or some other neurological event. And that's been supported by the Stroke Association as well. Although Eric knew what kind of stroke he'd had, doctors couldn't tell him what caused it. I was ridiculously healthy before I had the stroke. I'd never been at a doctor's in anger for years and years. The Norwegian consultant that dealt with me in Oslo had no answer to the question, why did I have a stroke? As he looked at me and he said, well, you're, you know, physically, you seem to be healthy in, in every way. So it was one of these things out of the blue, but then I suppose that's the thing about a stroke, it can happen to anyone. It was a scary thought. I mean, you can imagine the first few minutes waking up in a hotel in a strange country, unable to move. You're pretty scared. And I thought I was going to fall off my perch, basically. And it's only gradually, as I said, that you begin to realise all the different effects that the stroke has had. The obvious ones are the arm and the leg, which need to be fixed and can be fixed to some extent with a lot of hard work. But um, the, the psychological and the emotional things, those take longer. My wife and I lived together and we had three children. They'd all left home. So it was the two of us and the dog, basically. So a lot of responsibility landed on her shoulders and it was very demanding for her and still is demanding for her, I think. And I think carers and, you know, you don't like to think of your wife as a carer. I've spoken to a few people about this. The people who are caring don't always want to be known as carers. They want to be husbands, they want to be wives. It can be quite difficult to fall into the role of carer, apart from the, the medical knowledge that you probably don't have. Um, it's just, it changes a relationship. And you have to be aware of that as the stroke survivor and as the carer. Eric has also been working closely with local health authorities. There's not been an awful lot of research into stroke relative to other conditions. It's one of these areas that's not particularly sexy for the, the system or for the general public. It's regarded as an illness of old people, which it isn't necessarily. The amount of rehabilitation that's available through health and social care is very limited. In terms of acute care, Things like thrombectomy are not happening at all in Scotland. Thrombolysis is available, patchily, but thrombectomy is not. And that's a major cause of disability. If people have access to thrombectomy and thrombolysis, it's a very powerful combination of treatments. 
which can reduce the amount of disability that people suffer after a clot. And rehabilitation is a big challenge. It's expensive for the health and social care service. And it's a difficult choice when to end rehabilitation. And unfortunately, due to financial and resource constraints, often the decision to end rehabilitation for a stroke survivor is made on financial grounds rather than being driven by the needs of the patient. It's been a difficult period in life, but Eric is optimistic. I was pretty angry to begin with. I was angry with myself. I was angry with, yeah, with life. And I went through a, f- a phase of being very bitter and upset about the whole thing. But I took the decision eventually that I should try to do something to improve things for other survivors. And that's how I got involved, first of all, with an organisation called Healthcare Improvement Scotland, which is an NHS body which oversees healthcare. And um, also with NHS Grampian, I was a non-executive director of NHS Grampian for four years. There's an attempt to merge health and social care, to integrate them, to bring them together. So it was an interesting time to be involved in it. And I suppose I directed the anger and the energy that was given over to that into getting involved in in these other things. I also uh, am a volunteer with the Stroke Association and I've been quite heavily involved in the way things are organised in in Scotland through the charity. And he continues to work on his recovery. I want to keep maintaining the physical health I've got. So I've invested in various bits of equipment and I I realise I'm probably quite lucky to be able to do this. Uh, Just before Christmas, I purchased a small treadmill which is in our garage and which I've been using over the winter to keep active when the the weather's bad and it's not so easy to be outside. You know, I've got that sort of thing and I I exercise cycle and a sort of routine of exercises and stretches that I do with advice from a physiotherapist. I've also helped to start up and run an exercise class in the local community for people who've had a stroke or some other neurological event. And that's been supported by the Stroke Association as well. And I'm so involved with that. I go to the exercise class once a week. We've got access also to a community gym for the group. Uh, One of the things that stroke survivors listening to this will be aware of is that you can be quite embarrassed about your condition. And so, Going to a gym is not something that is just automatic or something that you feel confident about. We have negotiated as a group with the local community gym to have one hour a week of exclusive access to the equipment. And this was done on the condition that we used one of their exercise professionals to work with us. Uh, We have a physiotherapist that we pay for. And so we have a session there and that's been great. Because the focus of the group is on exercise, that's been important, but it's gradually become a social thing as well. So it's probably done all of us good physically, and it's certainly done all of us good in terms of social contact. I did go online and spent quite a lot of time at one point uh, looking at the Different Strokes website, which has a sort of message board and you can communicate with other stroke survivors. In terms of formal support from NHS or health and social care, 
that was very limited. I had one visit from a stroke nurse and she suggested it would be a wonderful idea if I went to the local stroke group in a nearby town where we could play dominoes. You know, dominoes I'm sure is a great game, but it's not my idea of how to spend a morning. And so that was the only thing that was offered in terms of, you know, this is what you can do. I suppose the lesson I take from that, and it's a lesson for myself as well as for people working with stroke survivors, is that, you know, get to know your patient, spend some time if you can, uh, getting to know what their interests are, what their goals are likely to be, and tailor any suggestions that you've got to that knowledge. For stroke survivors and their loved ones, Eric has one important word. Patience. Because if you don't have patience, you're not going to get very far, I'm afraid. It is a slow process recovering from a stroke, and it can be a very frustrating process for someone looking after someone who has had a stroke. So the advice would be to stick at it as hard as you can. There is improvement, and go for that improvement. Set yourself small targets that are achievable, and work with those. Think about the things you can do. And as a carer, think about the things that you could encourage stroke survivor to do. After his stroke, Eric has done all he can to make aftercare and support services as effective and as accessible as possible for other stroke survivors. Coming up on the next edition of Stroke Stories. And as I was brushing my teeth, I felt that the tip of my tongue went numb. And I thought I had been bitten by a spider or something at first. So I'd been in the garden doing a bit of work. Then it went away, so I continued brushing my teeth. I got a wave of heat from my forehead and it went to the back of my head. And I thought, oh, that's not right. So I stopped that and called my wife and she came in. By this time, I was lying on the bed. The right side of my leg and my arm was shaking a bit, like when you're cold, when you're shivering. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and rate and comment on the episode you hear because that really will help us spread the word. If you are or you know of a stroke survivor and you'd like to share a story with us, please contact us via Twitter or Instagram. Our DMs are always open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Listening.